I'll read today's passage of Mark before Jay comes up to explain it to us. Uh, so we're in Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 1. Um, that can be found on page 841 of the Black Church Bibles. So that's Mark 6, verse 1, on page 841. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Another said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his 
his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came, took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thank you, Adam, for reading for us. Thank you, Band, for leading us in our singing this morning. Um, we're going to look at this passage together now. I encourage you to keep uh, your Bible open and in front of you. We're going to work our way through it at quite a pace. It'll be really helpful to have it there so you can, you can see it. If you accidentally closed your Bible, it's page 841, um, Mark chapter 6. Let's pray before um, we look at this together. Our Father, we ask that by your Spirit you'd open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that as we look at your word together now, um, we would receive your word gladly and that your word would do its work in us, that it would change us and conform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask that you'd help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by giving you a question to think about. Why do people reject Jesus Christ? That's the question. Why do people reject Jesus Christ? wonder what you think about that. Why is it that the Saviour whom we love so much, who offers us such grace and kindness and love and joy, why is he rejected by so many? What are the reasons for that? What's going on in the heart of a person who doesn't want to know about Jesus when you try and explain about him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're considering the claims of Christianity about Jesus Christ, but at this point you're just not sure what you think. You're not sure whether Jesus is who he says he is, and you aren't sure whether you want to put your trust in him just yet. Well, the question to you, I guess, this morning is, what are the reasons for that? What's going on in your heart that's causing you to hesitate? Because Mark 6 is going to expose to us four sad responses from people who don't believe in Jesus. And it'll help us to think through as we try and tell people about Jesus, what's going on in the hearts of those people we're speaking to. I know some of you have got um, events week coming up with university missions, and this is going to be something you're experiencing over the next couple of weeks. There'll be people you talk to who don't want to know about Jesus. What's going on? How do we understand their reaction um, to us and what do we do with it. There's four reasons here, I think, that, that the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, is not received gladly by all. And that's also going to re- reveal to us the consequences, the, the even sadder consequences of rejecting Christ. Now, at the back of the service sheet has got those four uh, reasons, uh, four responses on it. If you want to make some notes, I'll give you the structure for you um, as we go through. Now, I know that as I introduce the passage like that, that's probably not too, too much what you want to hear this morning. It's a fairly depressing, fairly miserable, and we're going to be thinking about rejection. I want to just say a couple of things before we look at the text to help us to mitigate that reaction a little bit. Because we haven't read chapter 5. Last week we looked at chapter 4. Robin preached to us from chapter 4 and the parable of the sower. What we saw in the parable of the sower was that We could expect perhaps the majority of responses to the gospel to be negative, 
but that there would also be really positive responses too, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And had we read chapter 5, you can see it over the page there, Mark would have shown us, first of all, some of that kind of positive response. We'd have seen a man, a demonized man, healed, and then go and tell loads of other people about Jesus. We'd have seen a woman with desperate health issues and a synagogue ruler who was desperate because his daughter was dying. We'd have seen them both put their trust in Jesus. People are coming to faith in Jesus. They are believing in his message, in his gospel. And we mustn't lose sight of that response. But there is also the reality of rejection. And the people that Mark is writing to, first of all, they're experiencing that all the time. They're under the cosh from the authorities. They're living in a pagan world that's hostile to Christ. And so he's giving them and us a realistic picture of what the Christian life looks like. He wants to prepare us that rejection is normal. Seeing that's going to encourage us, actually. It's going to encourage us to keep going out with the gospel even when people don't see what we see about Jesus. Hopefully that will help us as we go through. Let's look at this text now together and these four sad responses. And the first one is in verses 1 to 6, and it's the response of sceptical unbelief. Jesus has been preaching and teaching in the northern regions of Israel, He's been performing amazing miracles, and it's all happened around the Sea of Galilee. And now he goes up into the hills to Nazareth, the place where he grew up. And Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he begins to preach, and his preaching blows people away. They've never heard anything like it, verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they ask? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? They've heard anything like it. But what might initially seem like a positive response, we quickly realise actually is not positive at all. Their amazement quickly turns to resentment. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. What was so offensive them. They could not accept that Jesus was anything more than a man from simple origins like them. They'd known him since he was a boy. They'd watched him grow up. They knew his family, his brothers and sisters, ordinary people like them. As a carpenter, he doubtless fixed their broken furniture and they hired him to repair their houses. So they're happy to hire him to do a job for them. But when he comes with authority in his preaching and he calls them to follow him, then they don't want to know. They couldn't accept that he was worth following. He's just a man like us, they thought. They're sceptical of his claims and they don't believe. They can't see that he's special. So familiar are they with him. And Jesus is very blunt about this, isn't he? He diagnoses this very quickly and directly to them. He says, a prophet is not without honour, 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, when we consider this first response, I think actually it's quite a common one that we have in our culture. And it seems common in Nigeria too. People are often very familiar with Jesus. They've often heard of Jesus. They'll have seen nativity plays over Christmas. They'll have come to carol concerts. They might come to an Easter service every year. And they'll enjoy all that. They've got used to Jesus being there in the rhythm and the, and the background of their lives. He serves a purpose for them. But they will not acknowledge him as anything other than just a man. And they won't follow him. When he challenges them with their teaching to follow him as their king, to give their lives to him, when they hear his claims to be Lord, then they take offence at him. They don't believe and they seek to put him back in his place. They want him in the background, but no more than that, please. Now this sad response carries consequences. Down at verse 5, we read there that these people missed out on the grace and blessing that Jesus would have offered them. He didn't do for them what he'd done for others. Just a few miracles, not many. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? Just a few miracles. It was sort of easy for him, just a few, but not many. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He was amazed by it. They knew him better than anyone. They'd lived face to face with the living God for over 30 years. They'd met God's son, and now they'd seen him work miracles, and they'd heard his teaching. Yet they still refused to believe in him. It's such a sad response. They knew all about him, but they didn't love him. Jesus would continue to preach in the villages. He wasn't put off by that reaction, neither should we be, when we see it. But those who respond in this way to Jesus, they miss out on the grace that could have been theirs. That's the first response, sceptical unbelief. Second response is in verses 7 to 13, a refusal to listen. Jesus now seeks to involve the 12, the 12 disciples in his ministry. And these guys have been trained um, to do this. Back in chapter 3, if you remember, Jesus called the 12 and set them apart to be with him so that he might send them out to preach and deal with the demonic opposition that they'd face. So he's been training them. But up to now, they haven't done anything. They've just been with Jesus. They haven't actually done anything themselves. Now it's their turn. And the way Jesus sets this up, he's training them, he's equipping them to, and he's using this as an opportunity to grow their faith in him. Look how he sends them out. He sends them out in pairs, but with nothing but a walking stick, a base layer, and some flip-flops. And he says, okay, your turn, give it a go. Go out on your own, trust me that your needs will be looked after. It's a trial run. It's a trial run to prepare them for the greater mission that they'll be sent on after his return from heaven. And verse 12 and verse 13 tell us what they did on this trial run. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But it's not just about 
the mission itself and what they're to do. It's about preparing them for the response to what they're doing, the response that their ministry will receive. There'll be some people who welcome them. Hospitality will be provided. Some will be receptive. But notice that, that Jesus gives more time to setting their expectations that what happened in Nazareth to him will also happen to them. And he teaches them how to respond to that rejection, just as he did in verse 6, actually, to move on. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they'll not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Some people, when they meet Christians, when they hear the gospel message, and especially when they hear about the call to repent, they just won't listen. And more than that, they won't want you in your, their community or in their lives. They won't want to hear about Jesus, and your presence there just reminds them of that. This is what Jesus says. The call to repentance is an unwelcome message for many. And when that happens, disciples of Jesus are to move on to another place, and as they leave, they're to shake off the dust that's on their feet, a sign of judgment. It's a sign that says our duty here is discharged. We've proclaimed the gospel, been rejected, and now we need to move on to somewhere else. Now, what do we do with that today? Does that mean that once you've told someone about Jesus and they've not put their faith in him, does that mean that you should then abandon that relationship I think that'd be a question that we might ask when we read this. Well, here's, here's my answer to that. Sometimes. I think this means that when we tell someone about Jesus and we receive a hostile response, which tells us we aren't welcome, Jesus says we've done all we can do and so we shouldn't feel bad about moving on to someone else who may listen the hospitality in, in this culture that they're um, living in was a given. If you, if you went to a, a village, someone would put you up. That's just the way that they, they did things. That's what's expected. So actually to refuse to put the disciples up, that's a big signal. That's not subtle. That's a big signal that just says, get lost. Because we don't want to know. A strong reaction to the gospel. So this isn't someone who just isn't sure what they think. It's not merely someone who politely says, you know, no thanks, but, but wants to stay friends with you. This is someone who doesn't want to know you. It's someone who doesn't want you or the message that you have about Jesus. See, it's not the disciples rejecting them. Did you see that? It's not the disciples rejecting them. It's them rejecting the disciples. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, it's okay for you to leave. Sad though it is, and it is really sad, isn't it? It's sad because these people may never have a chance again to hear about Christ. They may have missed their only chance. That's sad response number two. Here's number three. Verse 14 to 20, the response of confused thinking. About a year ago, uh, I met a friend of mine 
and I've been friends for, for a little while, he came to me and he asked me if we could talk about Jesus. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, maybe it does for you. It doesn't happen very often for me. Sometimes people are really interested. They want to talk to you. Um, I didn't have to do anything to get that. That was a great opportunity. But this is what we talked about. This, is, this isn't a joke. He was deadly serious about this. Um, his, his theory was that Jesus was an alien from outer space. Now, has anyone ever said that to you? They've not said that to me before. No one said that to me since. Didn't know what to say to that. I thought, of course, that he's just having me on, that he's pulling my leg and he's making a joke of things. But as I chatted to him, I realised that he wasn't joking. This is really what he um, believed. Now, I love this guy. He's a, a wonderful guy. He, you can tell he's a bit of a character, um, just from that description. Really friendly, he's warm, he's a good husband, he's a good father. He's the kind of guy who has time for anyone. But he's really confused. He knows about Jesus, he's heard about Jesus, he's interested in Jesus. But he's got no idea really who Jesus is. He's pulled together all kinds of other ideas that he's heard and created his own view of who Jesus is. And he's got it wrong. And there are lots of people like that, I think, around. Now, Herod Antipas, who's the guy we meet in verse 14, he's, he's not a nice guy, not at all. But he is an example to us of someone who's confused Someone who's confused about his, in his thinking about Jesus. Bit of background for us. Herod, Herod's a ruler in the region that Jesus and his disciples have been ministering in. And verse 14 tells us that there's been lots of speculation going on in that region. Lots of rumours flying around as to who Jesus is. Is he Elijah come back? Is he a prophet like the prophets of old? But there's one rumour, isn't there, that grabs Herod's attention, and rightly so. There's one thing he hears and his conscience is pricked and the guilt floods back in. Verse 16. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And Mark interjects his story here with a flashback. Now, we would have, if we paid really close attention to the text, we might have noticed this back in chapter 1. I missed it. Someone else had to point this out to me. But chapter 1, verse 14, there's just a little phrase in, in that verse where we're told by Mark that before Jesus begins his ministry, John had been arrested. And then we don't really hear about what happens. It's, we've got a whole other five chapters between then and now. And now we hear again about John the Baptist, and Mark fleshes out for us what happened at that time in detail. And, it, and it, as we read it through, you can tell it's, it's pretty gruesome stuff, isn't it? Herod had had John arrested because... John had called him to repent of an adulterous relationship. Herod had divorced his first wife in order to shack up with the wife of his half-brother, Philip. And Herodias, that's her name, she, against the law, had kicked Philip to the curb and she'd run off with Herod. Big royal scandal, big family blow-up. If the Daily Mail had been around at the time, they'd really loved this story it actually even caused a war. But worst of all, it broke God's law. See, Herod claimed to be one of God's people, yet he disregarded God's law, and he did so in a flagrant and unrepentant way. And John had called him out on it. 
And Herod, as rulers tend to do, he just had him arrested. Um, But notice he probably did it because he wanted to keep his wife quiet. Verses 17 to 19, it was at the behest of his new missus. As As we read about Herod, though, he's quite a complex character, isn't he? You see, he fears John. He knows that John's a righteous and holy man. But at the same time, he also likes John. He likes listening to him. That's in verse 20, even though, of course, he doesn't understand what's going on. He's a complex character, and lots of people are complex, aren't they? They've got lots of things going on in their minds and in their hearts. Now, what would John have been talking about to Herod? Well, we know, don't we, from chapter 1, that John preached a message of repentance from sin. That was, that was one thing. But he also preached about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the need to be sorry for your sins, that you might come to Jesus and be forgiven. That's John's message. And Herod finds John's message about Jesus entertaining. He finds it interesting. But ultimately, he finds it confusing. He's blind to the truth. Actually, he's quite like my friend in that. He, He just can't put it all together. It doesn't all make sense to him. And he's merged his superstitious beliefs with the clear teaching of God's word, and he's come up with his own false picture of Jesus. Maybe you've encountered people like that. Maybe you feel that you are someone like that. You're interested in Jesus, like to hear the Bible preached and explained, but you still find it confusing. And if we look at a sort of, if that's just the sort of surface layer, let's look a little bit deeper. What's going on in, in Herod's heart and what might be going on in our hearts if we're really honest, is that to believe that Jesus is who he says he is is also to confess that we've got it wrong and we don't really want to do that. We don't really want to confess that Jesus is the true king and we need to submit ourselves to him. The Herod needs his eyes to be opened. If he'd done that, he could have been forgiven, but, but he'd never asked God to do that. That's what he needed, and that's what those who are confused need to do, to ask God to reveal his truth to you. Herod could do that, but he doesn't, because for all his confusion, there's a deeper problem in Herod's heart. He's hardened his heart to the call to repent of his sinful ways and submit to Jesus. He's hardened his heart. He doesn't want to believe who Jesus is, because then he'd have to submit to him. And now he makes a foolish decision, doesn't it? And a wicked decision to eradicate the messenger that God had sent him at the request of his wife. And here we see our fourth and most wicked response to the gospel. We see it partly in Herod, but most clearly in his wife Herodias. And it's the hatred of the call to repent. Herodias has harboured a bitter hatred at John for some time. He'd embarrassed her publicly, and so she wanted to get rid of him. He'd not allowed her to get away with her wicked decision, told her it's wrong in God's sight, and so she's been seeking an opportunity to be rid of him. And now, verse 21, her opportunity has finally come. A birthday party. And Herod's showing off to high society, And Herodias' daughter, she comes in to dance. And that's just another example of the inappropriate nature of Herod's relationships. He's exploiting his stepdaughter for the entertainment of his friends. 
And then he makes this extravagant gesture, doesn't he? Anything you want, up to half the kingdom. Well, he's a politician, so he might not mean that exactly. In fact, I doubt very much that he would actually do that if she said, yeah, half the kingdom, please. And no, no, thank you. It's the kind of thing people say when um, they're trying to impress others. And it's the kind of thing people say when they've had too much to drink. You know, the girl does what girls should do. She goes and asks her mum what to do. And this is golden, isn't it, for her? This is the chance she's been waiting for. She knows that Herod cares about his reputation. She knows that he can't back down in front of his mates. And so to the shock of the party, I'm sure, the girl comes back in and she asks for John's head on a plate. It's not the dream dessert that Herod wanted. Verse 26 tells us that he's sorry about that, but that doesn't stop him doing it, does it? He still has John beheaded and gives it to her. In the end, his reputation and his relationship with his wife is more important to him than righteousness. And he commits this wicked act. In this incident, of course, what we're seeing is that John is very much a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? He's treated just as his master will be. Jesus is the truly righteous one whom the rulers of this earth hate and refuse to submit to, for he calls them to repentance and to bow the knee to him. They did to John just as they'd wished, and they'll do to Jesus likewise. Why did they hate John and the one that John pointed to so much? Because Jesus Christ calls people to repentance He calls them to confess their sins and submit to him as king that they might receive his forgiveness. And he's made that possible, that forgiveness possible through his death for sin on the cross. And in his grace, he holds that offer out to people if only they would bow the knee and place their faith in him. Yet still, some people will hate that call because it exposes their lives as wrong before God and before others. Sadly, people still respond like that to Jesus, don't they? And they are across the world. And it's desperately sad, for if only they would turn to him, they'd receive his grace. Yet because they want to be rid of him, they receive his judgment. We're drawing to the end. What do we do with a passage like this one? It's just so dark, isn't it? It's so sort of depressing in one sense. If you, if you were writing this gospel account, if you were Mark, would you put this stuff in? If you wanted to encourage people to go out and tell others about Jesus, would you include this? Because you, it doesn't really make sense. You think, well, you know, if this is the way that we're going to be treated, then why would we do it? Why would we... Follow Jesus, why would we try and tell others about him? I think there's two reasons that Mark includes this here for us as his readers. First of all, it's it's true. This is a realistic picture of what happens to Jesus and his disciples and John. And it paints for us, therefore, a realistic picture of what it means to live a life where you proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we need to know that this is what we're signing up for. 
Yes, there will be successes. There will be people who place their trust in Jesus. There will be those who gladly receive the message about him and respond with faith. But a life lived for Christ will be hard. Some of you you know this. Speaking Jesus' words to people will at times feel like really hard work and will seem to have very little to show for it. How's that encouraging? Because that's normal Christianity. Jesus found that to be true for him. And so did John, and so did his disciples. And so when we experience the same things, we take comfort that that means that we're not doing anything wrong in that. It's just as we'd expect. Isn't it good that Mark shows us this so that when it comes, we're not surprised and we're not overly discouraged? Here's another reason to be encouraged, I think, from this passage. This passage isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. This picture of rejection and harsh treatment for the sake of Christ is not all that happens. The disciples return from the journey in in verse 30, and the story continues. They keep on preaching and teaching about Jesus. And later when Jesus has died and he's risen and he's gone back to heaven, he gives his Holy Spirit to his disciples, and not just to them, but to us too. And despite all the hardship and the rejection and the suffering, disciples of Jesus Christ keep on speaking about what they know to be true about their King who died for them. Who would have thought that after this episode, that 2,000 years later, millions of people across the world would have put their trust in Jesus? How is that possible? Ridiculed, rejected, persecuted, killed, yet the gospel endures and the church grows and the name of Jesus is honoured and people are saved. How is that possible? Well, it's just as Jesus told us, isn't it? In those parables that we read, there'd be hardship, but there'd also be a crop of 30, 60, and 100 fold. This week, as you attempt to speak of Jesus and as you read your Bible with people, and as you face rejection, be encouraged. It's the way of Jesus, and it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is a new creation filled with people from all nations who have come to acknowledge that their carpenter is king. We pray together. Our Father, as we read a passage like this, we know there's something in our heart which tends to be discouraged, which tends to shrink back, from the call that you've placed on us to make disciples of all nations. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word sinks into our hearts this morning, as we think on these things, that you would continue to work in us, that you would give us boldness and courage, and you'd give us a sense of determination to keep on speaking about Jesus, even when we might face this kind of rejection. Help us, we pray, and particularly help those of us this week who are involved in the events around Uh, the universities. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us a right sense of the seriousness of what we're doing, but also a, a hope that this is not the end of the story and that as your word goes out, it can win people.
for the sake of your kingdom. We ask that you do that this week in Jesus' name. Amen.